Now, everything old is new again. America's entertainment pop culture talk show. It may well possess a rudimentary intelligence. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Felt a great disturbance in the force. Hello, I'm Mr. Ray. Come on, Mark, like a dog for me. Where's the goodies? Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Here are your hosts, Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. In a popular culture consumed with otherworldly avatars... Apocalyptic prophecies and giant transforming robots. How did a 72 year old drama about a small town in New Hampshire? This is the way we were in our filled with average people leading unremarkable lives and in our living and in our dying become America's most produced play. Uh, this week, Everything Old is New Again is going to explore theater in general and our town in particular. And who better to discuss this fascinating play and topic than a two-time Tony Award-winning actor from City of Angels in Chicago. Uh, let's see. It's not just that. Uh, our guest also has been in The Paper Chase, uh, Devil Wears Prada, Devil Wears Prada. The television show, Planet of the Apes TV series, Gossip Girl, so many more TV shows and so many more movies, but we can't go on and on. What we want to do is talk about his direction of the best, I would suggest, version of Our Town, the 2002 Broadway uh, performance that was taped for television in 2003, starring his friend Paul Newman. He's been with us before, and if you want to look it up, we're show number 333 in the past. A returning favorite guest of Everything Old is New Again, James Norton. Thank you for being with us. Good afternoon, Douglas. It's a, it's, it's a true pleasure, and, and I uh, wanted to just start off a little bit on this show because and talking about theater and dramatic theater, um, and it's, it's something that... I'm seeing so many theaters around the country, even, you know, the smaller theaters and the smaller towns and so forth and, and community theater. And and right now, I'd say the last, I'm going to guess, five, seven years, I've seen so many musicals, which I love and which does do bring in people to the to the audience, you know, the audience, that's for sure. However, I also have a place in my heart for the drama, for the comedy and in some ways, we're not seeing a whole lot of it out there. Do you see that as well a little bit in, in your experience or, or no? Well, I, I don't know uh, about that. My theater career, professional career, began at the Yale Repertory Theater. I also worked at the Long Wharf Theater in New Haven. My first play in New York was Long Day's Journey Into Night, uh, the O'Neill masterpiece. And you don't get much more straight drama than Long Day's Journey. Um, so I really come from that world. Uh, it's kind of ironic that uh, the two sh shows that you mentioned uh, were musicals, City of Angels and Chicago. Although I would say, particularly with City of Angels, it was a very strong book in that in that show, written by Larry Gilbart. And um, and the other thing we I think we have to recognize is um, musicals are what they call audience pleasers, and uh, certainly. To, <laughs> For the last couple of years, you'd have to say that we could use all the audience pleasers we could get. So uh, it's probably, you know, I think I always think the pendulum swings on these issues back and forth. And we may be in a 
in a musical heavy period right now, but there's probably a, a reason for that. I, I totally agree with that, and, and and I just wanted to bring it to light only in an introduction to taking a look at our town in particular, and, and just you know uh, stage in general that there are an is room certainly for all, and I want to just talk about for a moment. Uh, a little bit here about our town. Let's listen to a section here of Spalding Gray's presentation of the stage manager in 1989's version of Our Town. This play is called Our Town. It's written by Thornton Wilder. The name of the town is Grover's Corners, New Hampshire, just across the Massachusetts line. Latitude, 42 degrees, 40 minutes. Longitude, 70 degrees, 37 minutes. The first act shows a day in our town. The day is May 7th, 1901. The time is just before dawn. The sky is beginning to show some streaks of light in the east over there behind our mountain. The morning star always grows wonderful bright the minute before it has to go. Doesn't it? Well, there we go. It sounds... Hmm, by today's standards, that beginning sounds, can we, 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 dare we say, bland, boring, or really is it? It sort of seems like a mundane introduction to a town and people in the town. It's not uh, the extravaganza that uh, people sometimes feel uh, that that theater can present, Um, but it's really setting a tone, I think, for where this play is going to go and certainly does uh, surprise you at the end. Um, the question is, with respect to the presentation of of the uh, stage manager by different performers, um, I would suggest, as you're a director uh, and have directed this play, are there different ways that you can present the beginning of this play in terms of different ways to present these words that might make a different impression? Or is Thornton Wilder trying to kind of lull you into a sense of security in the beginning here and try to set the tone that this is going to be a play about a small town, may not be a total big surprise or wonderful, you know, uh, twists and turns. But, um, you know, what is your thought in terms of the way that he starts this play? Well, I think it's the beginning of the story. <clears throat> Once upon a time, basically, it's that it's that introduction, and he's also uh, uh, letting the audience know that it's going to require them to imagine a lot of these things. We imagine that this is where George's house is, and we imagine that this is where Emily's house is, and her mother and her father. And he int- he introduces the characters. He shows us where the houses are in relation to each other. He, shows us where the beans are planted and where the tree is. Uh, We see uh, the routine of the town, of Grover's Corners. We see uh, the milkman come with his horse and and wagon. Uh, It does start slowly, but it also immediately, if it's hopefully, involves the audience as a participant. They're not just able to sit back passively and see everything. They have to, they have to, uh, as we do when we read something, our, our imaginations will paint the picture. And that's what uh, the stage manager is doing there. Uh, I think that that uh, really 
resonates with people no matter how you're telling the story you don't need a transformer and you don't need uh spies and and uh, <laughs> and uh, action heroes and so forth to tell that kind of a story well this play has been awfully successful for an awfully long time it's been done by every theater company probably in the country uh interestingly uh joanne woodward paul's wife of course was uh the artistic director of the westport country playhouse and she had, uh, she and we were friends, jo- Joanne and I and Paul and, and my wife, Pam. We, we spent a lot of time together and we became very close friends. So one night I got a phone call from Joanne and she said, Jimmy, you know how I've always wanted to uh, produce um, a production of, of Our Town? And I said, yeah, you've talked about that. And this was shortly after 9-11. It was in the fall, actually, of 2001. And she said, well, I think after that experience of September 11th, I think America really could use uh, and our community could really use a a production of our town. And Paul wants to play the stage manager. And I said, you're kidding. And she said, no. And she and I had been after him to try to do something on the stage for about 20 years. And he would just go, no, no, I can't do that. I can't do that anymore. But he got excited about it, and she said, "I just walked out of the, out of the living room, and when I came back about 20 minutes later, he had learned the first uh, stage manager speech." And she said, "We were wondering if maybe you would like to direct it," and so that's how it began. And I said to her, "You know, uh, there are a lot of characters in it, and I think it would be wonderful if we could cast this show um, from." as from all the actors in and around our town, our town. We had a lot of actors who lived in town. And sure enough, Frank Converse became George's father and Jane Atkinson became Emily's mother. Jane Curtin, who lived right up the road, uh, up Route 7, an hour from us, became uh, George's mother. And we went to work. And then uh, Paul said, let's go to Broadway (laughs) for a limited run. And so we went into the Booth Theater, which is sort of the jewel for straight plays on Broadway. And while we were there, uh, PBS and Showtime were both interested in doing a, a television production of it. And so we got them to co-produce it. And um, I was really, really, really happy with the way in which it turned out for television. It's an amazing uh, performance. It turned out terrific. Uh, it is well worth your time. We'll be back right here. Everything old is new again with James Norton. Continue talking about theater and our town. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show with Douglas Viviani and David Cohen. Oh, oh, and could you <laughs> stop acting, please? What? <laughs> stop acting. There's really no need for it. You see, Emily is dead. The life she had is over. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, oh, gee whiz, she is just now realizing how precious... Every moment of that life really was, and that she never fully appreciated what she had. Just imagine what that must feel like, Rand. And we're here back with James Norton having a great time talking about Our Town. That's a little 
something there from my so-called life. Our Town Can Be and Is Contemporary. Now, this play goes back a long way, but James Norton had the opportunity, as we heard, to direct Paul Newman in his version of this. Tell us a little bit about your first experience with directing. Well, I, uh, I spent a lot of time in the summers up at the Williamstown Theater Festival. In about 1995 or so, I directed, a, for the first time, uh, a production of Filomena, written by Eduardo Di Filippo. Uh, Filomena was the play upon which the movie Marriage Italian Style was based, starring Marcello Mastroianni and Sofia Loren. I read it, and I sat down with the, the fellow who was going to be my set designer. And I said to Kurt, you know, this play, it's a big, huge, romantic comedy. And it all takes place in, in some guy's living room in, in the city of Naples, Italy. And I said, and it's really kind of a shame that it has to be inside in some World War II era house because it's, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we could do it outside? And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, maybe we could do it out, out like on the patio. And so the, the rooms of the house are, are are all around. Why does it have to be in a, in a clunky old living room with a bunch of old, old Italian heavy furniture. And I said, you know, if we're outside, we could have a we could have a star field in the back and it takes place in the evening and in, and in the morning and we could have sunrises and moonlights and it could be beautiful and romantic. And, you know, we could see the architecture of the of the buildings because the Italian architecture is actually romantic and it would lend itself to the material. And he, I could just see the wheels start to click. And he said, oh, give me two days. Two days later, he called me up and he says, can you come over? I said, yeah. So I went over to his apartment in New York and he had all these books and he's, and we sat together on the couch, flipping the pages. And I went, yeah, look at the, look at the, the, the architecture around the windows. He said, and the color of the masonry. He said, yeah. He said, you know, in the paint box, that color is called Naples yellow. Uh, it's sort of like a, a beautiful yellowy sandstone color. Well, he went to town and what we had for a set was this two or three story courtyard with bougainvillea and statuary and awnings and a star field and a moonrise. And it was glorious. It's still the most beautiful set I think I've ever seen. And it came about out of a conversation because we were talking about, you know, how do we want to present this thing? And that happens long before you ever go into rehearsal. You have to try to find a, a place that you want to put it where it will be beneficial for the story to be told and for the actors to work in. Now, with respect to that, do the actors then respond to that better than, let's say, in our town? where, Or is it easier, let's say, to put themselves, of course, in that position when you've got that around them versus a chair and a table and no walls in, in like our town, right? <laughs> well, you kind of can't find two more, two more disparate examples, can you? All that stuff around you really does help the play it's a big romantic comedy the people are angry and they yell at each other and they are in love with each other and it's it's a big heartfelt show and so all that other stuff was just wonderful it was set, set decoration you know and of course on the other end of the spectrum you have our town where you don't have much of that although i have to i have to confess i said to tony walton who just died, by the way, the mm. set designer and costume designer of our town. He was a wonderful, wonderful man and a tremendous artist. And actually, the first time I worked with him, Paul directed Joanne and me in um, a production of The Glass Menagerie that we had done first in Williamstown, and then Paul made the film. He shot the film. Michael Ballhaus, a renowned cinematographer, was our uh, director of photography. 
And Tony, uh, Tony Walton was our set and costume designer for the Glass Menagerie. So I called him up and I said, I'm going to direct Paul in our town. Would you like to? He said, I sure would. And so that's how Tony came on board on our town. Mm -hmm. Goodbye, world. Goodbye, Grover's Corners. Mama, Papa. Goodbye to Clock Sticky. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? Every, every minute? No, saints and poets, maybe. They do some. Actually, that's from my so-called life. I just wanted to play that for you and juxtapose that to the next clip, and then we're going to get uh, get your reaction. I want to hear uh, a little something different here and see how they're performing the different different actors performing the same part. Oh, you're too wonderful for anyone to realize you. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every every minute? No. Saints, poets, maybe they do so. Now, my my point being with James Norton here is is that actors use their voice as a instrument, of course, like as if they were in a band. And we heard two different versions here, basically the same portion of the play, performed in different ways. Um, at your level, of the Broadway level, how much does a director get involved with the choices that an actor makes with respect to how much pause they're going to do, they're crying, they're not crying, and so forth, on any particular piece of work? Versus, let's say, if you remember the, the days when you were in younger theater, I guess, or community theater, um, what is the director's role with respect to how the actor or actress actually performs, let's say, a soliloquy? Well, I remember when we were rehearsing, you know, you know the way this this play is constructed, um, you got a huge cast and um, everybody's working very hard for a couple of hours. At the end of that time, you basically have to hand it off to the actress who plays Emily. And she has to deliver uh, in this incredible scene where she gets to do something that's fantastical but sort of universally wished for which is to go back for one day and see uh the living people after she's after she's already dead and so she goes back for that one day and she chooses the day of her 12th birthday and she and she goes back and she's in the room with her mother and her father and they're re they're, she's reliving what happened and she looks at them and she says oh my god they're so beautiful and she's overwhelmed but she's overwhelmed by what life really is and what it means and how we all just kind of go along and nobody really is appreciative or or has any idea how precious it is or how how little time we have and she says, oh, I can't go on. I, does anybody ever realize it? And he says, well, saints and poets, maybe they do some. And then Simon Stimson, the, the choir director, uh, he delivers this incredible, because they're all, these are all the people who are dead. And they're all up there, supposedly in heaven or wherever they go, hanging out in the cemetery. 
And and Simon Simon Simpson says, yes, now you know. Now you know. That's what it was to be alive. To move about in a cloud of ignorance. To go up and down trampling on the feelings of those about you. To spend and waste time as though you had a million years. To be always at the mercy of one self-centered passion or another. Now you know. That's the happy existence you wanted to go back to. Ignorance and blindness. Now you got to know that you have to figure that that's Thornton Wilder. That's part of his message, which is don't be blind. Don't be ignorant. Take some time. Look around you. Realize and appreciate this gift that we have called life, which is the message of the play. And um, that actress, Maggie, did a wonderful job. And I remember in rehearsal, going over it and over it with her and I'm and I had to get her to try you're asking the question what does a director do I had to get her to invest more and more and more and more to have it cost her to see what that was and I would encourage her to go further and I remember there was an ad on the radio uh, for the casinos up in Foxwoods in Connecticut John Pizzarelli was singing the wonder of it all. Remember that? Sure. And I would say to Maggie, I say, Maggie, what you're going to do is you're going to go in here and what you have to understand is and tell us about is the wonder of it all. Don't be afraid to go. Go for it. And she did. And um, she was heartbreaking, heartbreakingly uh, beautiful in it. You know, I really thought she was just wonderful. And uh, the guy who played Simon Stimson uh, was was also just wonderful. He's a wonderful actor, and, and of course, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, Stephen Spinella. Stephen Spinella. Um, so anyway, that's what that moment is about, and it's about uh, it's about taking a moment, taking a little pause every few every day, if you can. Look around you and don't take for granted what we have going. Because time goes so fast, that's for sure. Uh, speaking of time flying, we're out of time for this section. We'll be back right after this and everything old and new again with James Norton talking Our Town and more. Well, this is Karen Allen from Raiders of the Lost Ark and Zarman, and I'm here to tell you about my wonderful store and website, KarenAllenFiberArts.com. It's KarenAllen-FiberArts.com. I carry all kinds of really unique gifts and women's clothing, lines from all over the world, from small studios that are things you won't see anywhere else. And if you're looking for a gift or something for yourself, please get in touch with us. We would love to help you find that special thing. That's KarenAllen-FiberArts.com. Now, back to America's Entertainment Pop Culture Talk Show. Everything old is new again. Goodbye to clocks ticking, and Mama's sunflowers, and food and coffee, and new iron dresses, and sleeping and waking up. Oh, Earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize you. Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? Every, every minute? No. The saints and poets, maybe. They do some. 
We're back here on Everything Old is New again, talking with James Norton about Our Town, and that's just a uh, clip of the Wonder Years who featured that uh, that play. So again, it runs and has been running through our culture for, for so long. It does have a lasting impact, I would suggest. And I'm just uh, kind of searching for an idea, maybe from the gentleman that directed Paul Newman's version in 2002 and three. Do you agree, first of all, that it has a long-lasting impact, and is it something that the youth of today is it worthwhile for them to take a peek at this play and take it in, especially just kind of juxtaposing this to the computers and the phones and all the apps? And can we slow down kids to watch this and enjoy this? And should we? Yeah, I think the message is timeless, Douglas. And and what we just talked about in the last segment, particularly the climax of the play, it is very, very moving. And people are uh, are, are quite moved by it. And it's a sort of a lesson. Yeah, let's take a moment to smell the roses, you know. We, we have to keep learning. We all have to keep learning that message over and over again. Yes, and, and you know, it, it is worthwhile to have uh, our kids sit back and spend some time getting to know and learn characters because that's what this play is about. If you didn't care and don't care about the characters that you're experiencing at the end with the little bit, let's call it a Twilight Zone type of ending, you're not really going to care about what's happening. So that's what I love about the play, too, is it builds characters. It's sort of like uh, Mayberry or, or Andy Griffith's show meets Twilight Zone in kind of a way, but you're not going to get there to the end unless you enjoy and like and care about those characters characters who are just kind of living a life but isn't our town isn't even though we, we have a different world and there's so stuff things go by so fast sometimes really i go to work every day i come back i go to the store i meet kind of the same people around town even though my town might be more populated than than others you know but you still it is still my town so it i can relate to it i think somebody in new york city can relate to it and someone in iowa can relate to it in different environments no well, it's, it's, it's about more than a town. It's using a, t- a town in New Hampshire uh, as an example, but it's bit, basically all of our shared existence of what it is to be human. And it's about our humanity to each other or lack thereof. You know, it, it's tough these days because we watch so much TV and movies in our houses where there are so many interruptions in the telephone and the other screens. A few, a couple of years ago, they they had a screening of our town, the, our production of it at the Playhouse in Westport, and you know there was going to be a talk back afterwards. They wanted me to come down as the director and and lead a, a question and answer period. And I've done that many times as both an actor and a director. And usually, you know, at, at the end of the show, maybe forty or fifty or sixty percent of the people get up and leave, and maybe you wind up with ten or twenty or thirty percent. Well, we were all sitting there together. In the, in the playhouse, watching this, watching it on screen. And when it was over, I got up in front of the house and I don't know, maybe 5% of the people had left. And I looked at the crowd and I was very moved by it because of course they were all my friends and people I worked with 20 years ago. And it was a wonderful experience that we shared making it. But the audience looked like they'd been poleaxed. Mm. You know, they really got it. They got the message of the play uh, they they heard what Thornton Wilder was saying. They remembered, a lot of them did, the production that we had done originally at the Playhouse. And then they saw it on Broadway, and then they saw it on TV. But nobody had seen it probably for 10 or 15 years. And it, it was very, very, very moving to all of us and meaningful. So I think the message of the, of the Thornton Wilder 
has written uh, still is very uh, timely and will always be timely. It's just we have to take the time to put ourselves in a place where we can see it without a lot of interruptions and let the let the thing work on us and for us. And speaking of working, you've done other things and had other projects for sure. And uh, you had a, a project with Arthur or an Arthur Miller play that you were involved with. And I'm just curious to see if you'd like to share a little bit about that experience. Another uh, playwright of, of of certainly a stature uh, that we should respect. That was a delightful experience as well. We did that in at uh, at the Williamstown Theater Festival, I think, in about 1997 or eight. I was doing, I think I was doing Chicago on Broadway at the time, and I negotiated a, taking a couple of months off in the summer, and then I went, went back into the show and basically played it for over a year. And I went up to Williamstown and directed The Price, the Arthur Miller play. It's a four-character play. Some, I had four wonderful actors, Bob Dishy, Jeff DeMunn, whom I mentioned before, Harris Eulen, and a wonderful actress named Elizabeth McKay. That is a play that Arthur Miller wrote and it was produced. It was it was a star-crossed production. And so the, the play didn't quite, it came into town, it came into the city, but it sort of limped in. And uh, the producer of that play, Robert Whitehead, said to me afterwards, he saw the production and he said, Jimmy, you got the end of this play. We never got it. And I think that uh, the price has been thought to be sort of second tier Arthur Miller, hmm. partly because the original production was uh, compromised when they, they had a problem with an actor who had a, a health problem. So they never quite got it. It never was able to come to fruition and, and realize its potential. But it's very, very, very powerful. And what happens in the play is there are two brothers. One uh, has stayed home and taken care of his father and sacrificed his career. He becomes a policeman in New York. And the other one goes off and becomes a very successful and wealthy doctor but basically leaves and does not take responsibility for having cared for his, his aging and infirm father. And they come together after the father has died in the attic of the house because it's time to get rid of all the stuff that's accumulated there. What's wonderful and brilliant about the writing in the play is you think you know who you're rooting for of the two brothers in this argument that they're having. And then you realize, oh, I don't have all the information. And so then you go, oh, wait a minute. No, uh, it's the, the cop isn't the, the right guy. He basically was sold a bill of goods. He gave up his whole, his whole life. He dedicated his life to his father, who he thought needed him, and he didn't have any, enough money. And it turns out he did have a lot of money, and he was holding out on him. And the older brother, who went off to be a successful surgeon, knew that. And, he, and it, it's like peeling an onion. You think you know what's going on, and then, oh, my gosh, I, there's information I didn't know. And it changes the way you feel as an audience member about it. So it was a, it was a wonderful production. We did it in Williamstown. Arthur Miller came to see it and loved it. And a producer took us to uh, Broadway, and we played it for uh, a better part of the season uh, at, I think, the Golden or the Royale Theater. I have a funny story to tell you. Yes. Arthur Miller was a big guy. He was about six foot four. He loved the production. And I came downstairs into the dressing room as he was just backing out of Jeff DeMunn, who played the cops dressing room. And Jeff's performance was wonderful. And it was like, bam, rat-a-tat-tat-tat. Here's a guy who's being told by his older brother 
that he has sacrificed his life, giving it all up to, to take care of this old man, his father, who didn't deserve it and who had been holding out on him. And so he's, he's just frenetic. And Jeff's performance was that. It was, bam, what, what you, you're telling me about, bam, 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 bam. The, the audience was sitting on the edge of their seats, you know, watching this thing unfold. And so as I was pulling up behind Arthur and, and looking over his shoulder into Jeff's dressing room, I hear Arthur as he's backing out and, and he said, oh, just one more thing, he said to Jeff. You could love the words a little more. <laughs> Good luck. And he backed out and he and he walked away. And I and I went into Jeff's dressing room and I slammed the door behind me and I said, if you start loving the words, he says, no, 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 I won't, I won't, I won't. <laughs> but it's, it's a great writer's story, right? It, it is. And, and it also, it translates in that in this day and age, you know, again, back to musicals and there's nothing wrong with them, but that's the beauty sometimes of the drama or the comedy. You know, you, you can you have a little more time because there are more words and more exposition and you can get into backstories and you can and get lost and go down, make a left turn where you think you know that's the way to go home, but really the right turn is the way to go, and you don't find that out till the later later on when you've gotten lost. You know, I mean, it's sort of, it's just such a. I want to now dig up. Let me just say to you, Douglas, what you just said. You know, there's something about the difference between musicals and dramas. If you're sitting on the edge of your seat because you're hanging on every word and you know that something is at stake in a drama. There's an emotional quotient to it that is just that. I had a, fr a friend, a guy up in Williamstown, he'd say, Jimmy, you know how I sleep through every per performance? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I don't sleep through the whole thing. He said, but it's an indication of how good the show is if I only take a short nap, you know? <laughs> and, I think, and I think that musicals uh, tend to be a little more uh, performance-oriented. They, they maybe don't have the emotional quotient that a, a really great drama can have. A drama can tear your heart out. And yeah. um, so I think that that's kind of a little bit of the difference. We'll be back right after this and everything old and new again with James Norton talking Our Town and more. This is Everything Old is New Again, America's entertainment pop culture talk show. Uh, welcome back. Everything Old is New Again. We are talking theater with James Norton, two-time Tony Award winner, and also the director of the Paul Newman Our Town. And I just wanted to talk about for, well... Um, well, my wife recently, she's going to be in the next weekend in a Diary of Anne Frank. I hear her come home every night, and we talk, and she's enthused, and she's excited, and it's something she hasn't done because we have a family, so she hasn't been on stage before. 14 years and to see the excitement in an actress or actors when they come back the glow of after rehearsing something and it getting right and then the intricacies of what the director's doing and the different actors between each other hey look at me in the eyes versus looking at the ground and all the different things uh, that you, you do that we don't have time to go into now but the point being is the excitement of being in that performance and then now it's going to be performed this weekend this particular play is going to of course present a message too that I think is going to be long lasting uh, and uh, and have meaning to people that is so important that I think it's it's something that uh, I'm saying twofold to act is so much fun when you're doing it right and enjoying it I'm certain I'm sure as well as when you're performing in something that you also know is going to possibly if done right have an effect on other people's lives yeah yeah it can be tremendously satisfying or 
frustrating. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, because then what if the what if the one actor you were acting with it just happens here, you know, forgets a line or something, or you you know you're worried about their performance. I mean, it is a team too, right? And what is the director's more or less the the ringleader of this team or the manager of this team as you go out and perform? Well, you know, that's one of the things that's so uh, satisfying and for me about it is it's a team sport. And when you go out there together and you're out there, you know, in a live theater, you're out there without a net and uh, you depend upon the the other players and they call us the players, you know. And I, I like to think that when it's really going good and when it's really done well, you're out there and what are you doing? You're playing with each other. And I was a I was a guy who played uh, soccer and baseball and basketball as a kid, and I played soccer and baseball through college. So being a member of a team like that is something that I've always really loved. And being a member of a company when you're out there together doing something like really really good material can give you an awful lot of the same kind of satisfaction. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, just along those lines, just to kind of turn a little bit back to Thornton Wilder for a moment, a short clip of a story about Montgomery Cliff and his interaction with Thornton Wilder. I wanted to just get your reaction to this. Monty right. was concerned about spiritual matters, but he was very concerned about God. And one of the beautiful things he had was a letter uh, from Thornton Wilder. Thornton Wilder wrote The Skin of Our Teeth and was the greatest of American playwrights, I think. And uh, Monty obviously asked Thornton Wilder at one point, said, is there a God? And Thornton Wilder took time to think about it and wrote him this beautiful letter, which Monty had, and he used to like to read it. And the answer is, there's a bridge between life and death, which you can call God. And that the only thing that we know is that that bridge is traversed by our love of those who die and go on to another world. As long as we remember them and as long as we love them, they're alive. And I, I play that only because it shows this gentleman was a, a deep individual that, that wanted to present works that had an impression upon other people and maybe was able to, you know, affect someone for the better. I don't know. Is that your impression of Thornton Wilder and, and maybe through or this work through Our Town or anything else that you've experienced with him? Well, yeah, I, you know, that's that's, I think, the message of the, of this play and what, what makes it a work of art. He, he evokes... In, in those of us who shared uh, an, an evening of our town in a decent production, the big questions, what is life? What is death? What are we doing here? Why are we here? All those things. It's interesting, you know, I'm spending a lot of time this week uh, in Connecticut with radio talk show hosts. We're trying to get this medical aid in dying law passed in Connecticut for the 14th time in the past 20 years. New York doesn't have it yet, but New Jersey, Vermont, and Maine do. And there are 10 states that do and and the District of Columbia. And I've testified up in Hartford now for three out of the last four years uh, before the legislature, before the Public Health Committee. And the reason that I'm involved is because um, my wife, of 46 years died after a four-year battle with pancreatic cancer a few years ago. And um, we got to the point where she looked at me one morning and she said, Jimmy, I don't want to wake up anymore. And she saw my reaction and she said, well, we've always known this was a fatal disease. And that night when I climbed into bed with her about 11 o'clock, she woke up and she looked at me and she said, oh, I thought I wasn't going to have to wake up anymore. 
So this whole issue that we're talking about, that, that Thornton Wilder was writing about, is something that I have particularly very close personal contact with, that edge, the edge between uh, living and dying. And my wife was there, and I was there with her. And um, there was no question in my mind when she said that to me, that there was nothing that I wouldn't do to try to help her. So I'm still working on trying to um, get that done for people who are suffering re really too much and too long and uh, can't be um, assuaged by palliative care and hospice care, which are wonderful, but they aren't enough in some cases. And now I've come to know uh, a bunch of other people who have testified, as I have for the last several years, several of whom have died. Uh, too soon before the Connecticut legislature has passed it. We're hoping we're going to get it across the goal line uh, this month or next month. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's sort of the reason why I brought to the to, to light that Montgomery Cliff story and Thornton Wilder in that. Uh, and I just wanted to uh, ask, is there some way that we can peek in and help in any way, shape or form? Is there a website, an organization uh, that we yes. can uh, take a look at? Yes, there, there sure is. There is a website. And it's called CompassionAndChoices.org. And if some of your listeners would go to CompassionAndChoices.org, find out if they don't know already who their legislators are, their state, Connecticut state representatives and state senators, and write, because the, CompassionAndChoices.org will tell you what the email address, uh, written address, and telephone number is of your legislator of their legislator and they can call and say this is important legislation we, we need this to be passed 75 percent of connecticut residents want it 69 percent of catholics want it 65 percent of people with disabilities want it 80 percent of uh, people between the ages of 18 and 50 or 60 want it, it libertarians want it liberal democrats want it People who are small government people want it. They don't want the government to be telling them what they can and can't do. They want, they think it's a matter of self-determination and having the autonom autonomy. When the time comes, if they are suffering as people do and linger, they want the ability to uh, die with dignity. There are all kinds of safeguards in the law so that it doesn't get abused. This law has been active since 1997 in Oregon. 25 years ago, people in Oregon have had the ability to, to use this. And since then, there are all these other states that are that have signed on. We're trying to get it done in Connecticut. If this And, and Connecticut is in, the, the legislature is in session right now. And this is going to come up for a vote sometime in the next four to five weeks. So, yes, it could make a huge difference. Yeah, and I would respectfully suggest that at first blush, like most things, if we, when you hear about something and you just hear, you know, one sentence about it in a summary of something, it doesn't give you enough information to make a proper and and uh, informed decision about what you're talking about. Because at first blush, it could be presented in a way that's that's not palatable. But if you go to Compassion and Choices, Compassion and 
endchoices.org. You will go in to a site that will tell you specifically what we're talking about here that will at least give you the information you need uh, to decide for yourself. Uh, and, and I would always suggest that's the way to go. Get your information first before you make your decision. And if you're on board, then yes, uh, this weekend, uh, today, what if you, when you're done listening to our show, go to compassionandchoices.org and inform yourself. And then, uh, like Mr. Norton says himself, get involved. Uh, as we should do, right? Yep. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I am so uh, happy to have spent time with you again. Uh, I thank you for uh, sharing your your personal stories uh, as well as the interpretation and your interpretation, which certainly is is of value, that's for sure, is the director of what I think is the best uh, performance of our town. Uh, It has been an absolute pleasure, and I I thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to the next time we, we get back together and that you have been involved in so many projects that I uh, certainly in- enjoy, not to mention, not the least of which we always, and we talked about last time, is the Planet of the Apes, but also Paper Chase, and there's just so many things that you have done, that uh, Chicago, and uh, that's to talk about. So you're a fountain of information and enjoyment, and let's face it, uh, this is not something we always hear on the radio, so we're happy to promote and, and produce uh, radio that is something of interest, and our audience really reacted very well to the last time you had, had you on the air, so I know, I'm sure we're going to get a great response here. So again, James Norton, thank you so much for being on Everything Old Show again. Thank you, Douglas. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Uh, We will be back next week to continue uh, all good things, talking about entertainment, pop culture, and and come on back. Everything Old is new again next week. These days, the news is full of teen suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, bullying. It's depressing and concerning, but there is hope. WWE Intercontinental Champion Mark Merrow. Champion Choices is a live presentation that empowers students to make positive choices and live their best life. I teach students how to live a drug-free life, prevent bullying, avoid peer pressure, and keep negative people out of their lives. We are defined by our choices. There is hope. To schedule a Champion of Choices presentation for your school or organization, visit thinkpaws.org. That's thinkpaws.org. You've been listening to Everything Old is New Again, America's pop culture entertainment talk show. Find us on the web at everythingoldisnewagain.biz. That's .biz. See you next week. Same bad time, same bad station.